This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. Visit whereyou'refrom.org for more information. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. I think it is a good thing that we have an awful election cycle. It's not entirely good, but there's something good about it. It's going to force us as evangelicals to rethink our monochrome uniformity to a major political party. This is our shining moment. Richard Clark. I am the online managing editor here at Christianity Today and the host of this episode, every episode really, of The Calling. We've got Bruce Ashford on the podcast today. He's a guy that I got to catch up with and talk to briefly at the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission conference. And we had a really good talk. It was about 20 minutes, but it was kind of packed with a lot of his thoughts on the current political season. He's had a lot to say. He's written in a lot of different outlets. You might have seen his name all over the place. But we had a good talk about sort of the Christian foundation that should sort of guide what and how we do in this political season, how we engage in politics, and what Christians have to offer to the political discussion in particular, which I think is sometimes something that gets missed or oversimplified. And so uh, we had, you know, I think it's a it's a really timely discussion, especially now as we get, you know, predictably, as we get closer to the voting day, we, uh, we're starting to see relationships strained. We're starting to see a lot more urgency, maybe, maybe lack of perspective, maybe not uh, in some cases. I mean, I think it sort of runs the gamut, but depending on who you are, what you struggle with, whether you're too apathetic or whether you are too invested. I I am a little bit of a pendulum. I find myself on both sides of that. Um, But one thing that really I've uh, begun to notice is the degree to which relationships have been strained. There are some people who view the pro-life movement as so important that anyone who would remotely not vote for the quote-unquote pro-life candidate, we can debate that term. A lot of people have. You know, there's a tendency to want to write that person off as not caring. On the other hand, you have people who are just totally aghast that anyone could begin to support a candidate like Trump who has sort of said the things he said and the ways that he said them. And I think this is one of those years of all years, ironically, where we should be able to empathize with one another's choice. I'm, I'm looking forward to after November because I think there will, the, once the stakes are lower, I think it will be easier to have those conversations. When I was having a conversation with Bruce about these things, one of the things that came to mind is an anecdote that Brian Lortz shared with me in one of the podcasts previously, which you can find. It's an amazing uh, interview. You should definitely check it out. Brian Lortz talked about, you know, praying over, and this is in the podcast. He talked about praying over a woman who had asked for prayer for her uh, job as a campaign manager, a sort of a local campaign manager in her state for Trump. You know, Brian Lortz is um, an African-American pastor in a multi-ethnic church, and so he do- he's not personally a supporter of Trump. And his elder board was a little put off by the request, but 
they did it. That just made me think, you know, I think we have to remember to be human to each other and to treat each other like human beings. And that's something uh, I don't think we've lost in this election cycle, but I think that we have uh, under-prioritized, maybe. Just my opinion. Something I'm thinking through. I've been thinking through thinking through about a lot, a lot about this election season. I actually wrote an article that you could read now if you're a subscriber called A Year of Living Hopelessly. It's a CT editorial on the latest issue of Christianity Today. You can read that editorial for free if you're a subscriber. I guess it's not for free. But it only costs you $10 for a year-long subscription. If you go to orderct.com slash the calling right now, that's orderct.com slash the calling, and you will get a subscription. Ten print issues sent to your mailbox, and then you can just immediately go to the website and read that article. I basically sort of talk about what we're supposed to do in a year where all hope seems to be lost. And I try to put that in perspective, but even more than that, sort of talk about the ways in which we fall into a trap of nihilism. Um, We fall into sort of the first half of Ecclesiastes without filling it out with the second half and definitely not as much with the rest of the Bible and sort of the hope that lies there for us. Anyway, this is my conversation with Bruce Ashford. He is, by the way, the author of Every Square Inch, an introduction to cultural engagement for Christians and One Nation Under God, a Christian hope for American politics. He's a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. Enjoy. Where are you living? You're in, I always get my Carolinas mixed up. I am in North Carolina, and we live right on the border of Wake Forest and Raleigh, which is where the seminary is. What church do you, you're an elder? I am a directional elder at the Summit Church, where our lead pastor is J.D. We had him on this podcast, and I asked him about airplane evangelism. Airplane? (laughs) Because he he had a story or two. Yeah, he did that thing where he just talks about, matter of factly, he was talking to a person about the gospel on an airplane, and I was like... I don't ever do that because I'm scared to death, and that can't always go well. So I was just really interested in like the whole idea. Yeah, and you know, he, he he's good at it. I'm not. He he. Uh, you know, when I get on an airplane, I want to not talk to anybody. Yeah. Just to be honest, I, I want to sit there and and read a book. We always start this podcast with the one question, and is this: How would you define your calling? I think my calling is to go wherever the Lord wants me to go and to help bring uh, that people or that nation into a missionary encounter with the gospel. When I was younger, he sent me to Central Asia, and I did that in a predominantly Muslim context. Right now, he has me in the United States. And I think the most challenging, one of the most challenging ways or venues is politics and public life. If we can bring the United States into a missionary encounter with the gospel in politics, we can do it in any venue. The way you started that seems did seem like mission, like a, you have a missionary mindset. So you're interested in going into places, sort of spreading the gospel. Yeah, you know, L- Leslie Newbigin, the, the great British missionary who came back and taught philosophy and theology, served for 40 years or so in India. And when he came back to the West, when he came back to England, he said all of a sudden he realized that ministry in the West is going to require us to take a missionary posture. And we generally haven't taken a missionary posture because we've been a majority, or we think we've been a majority. So we've done more like a, a discipleship. Well, I mean, when you're the majority, you're just free to tell people what to do, right. not to define your terms as much. You yeah. assume that they understand what you mean by the word God or sin or Jesus. But when you realize that you're living in the middle of a pagan nation, then you have got to work hard to exegete the culture, to understand the idols and ideologies of the day, 
to understand how those have shaped the people to whom you minister, and then to think really hard about how you interface the gospel with that culture. And we've got to we've got to learn how to do that in the United States. When was the moment you would say you became aware of your calling? Yeah, you know, I think progressively. I think as a child, my parents gave me missionary biographies, and they were every, they missionaries. Uh, they were not. They were turned down by the IMB because they had a twelve-year-old son, and at that time, the IMB's policy was not to send people over with children of a certain age. So they figured that they would live out their calling through us. They never pressured us, never told us they thought that's what they wanted us to be. But as it turns out, another sibling and I both served as missionaries. So that was sort of the seed of my calling. When I turned 18 or so and went to college, I just realized that God wanted me to be a man of the word. Wasn't sure how. I thought about being a journalist, thought about being a lawyer, wanted to be a pastor, wanted to be a missionary. Never really had a clear sense of exactly what my workplace calling would be as a man of the word. I just knew that God wanted me to take a a missionary posture towards uh, whatever endeavor he wanted me to do. What what did you study in college? Well, I started out in law, and then I moved to journalism because I encountered a brilliant journalism professor who was challenging and motivating, and I thought I could change the world with my pen. Uh, Then I sensed God was calling me to seminary and became a professor, and recently I've returned to my journalism a bit that I think... Uh, One of the things I hope that I can do to help my country is to use my pen to write short-form pieces that apply Christianity to significant issues in politics and public life. What caused you to suddenly want to go back into journalism? Well, you know, when you do a PhD, they teach you to write just really awful prose. (laughs) Yeah. It's horrible. Scholarly prose. It's really bad. I mean, it's it's worst case scenario. People don't want to read your, your prose when you write like a scholar. There is something important about writing like a scholar. It allows you to be precise and so forth. But uh, after having written like that for about a decade, I began to realize that I was limiting, severely limiting my ability to help bring my fellow Americans and fellow Christians into a missionary encounter with the gospel. And that most folks now read, uh, they're, they're not going to read more than, say, 400 to 800 words, uh, which is today considered a blog post, but that's what I learned when I was a journalism major. How do you take an idea yeah. and put it out there in a generally accessible manner, 400 to 800 words? What has been your biggest struggle in working out these callings? These are This kind of overarching missionary calling, but more specifically too, like the political engagement and even like in, in the context of your local church, all those things working together, what's been this biggest struggle that you've had? So personally, a struggle has been how to find time to do it. I've got multiple callings. I'm a father of uh, three children, six, five, and three. Wow. I'm a husband, um, an elder at the Summit Church. I'm a, a provost, administrator at Southeastern, and a professor, teacher, and then I also want, that's, and then I also want to write. That's too much. So, but what, <laughs> but what I have to do, the Lord calls us to be faithful in our callings, yeah. and so I need to be and want to be faithful in those other callings. That means my time in writing is going to be limited, and that's okay. I'm settled to that. God will work in and through limited time time framework. In terms of our nation and bringing it into a missionary encounter with the gospel, I think probably the most difficult thing has has been that many of us, I'll include myself, have bought into master narratives that are not the biblical narrative. We've bought into the Fox News narrative or the MSNBC narrative or the Republican or Democrat or conservative or progressive or libertarian narrative of the world. And each of those narratives, to some extent, is going to be skewed. And is going to tend towards being idolatrous. 
is going to tend to absolutize some aspect of God's creation. The tough thing and the joyful thing is to help reinstall the biblical narrative as the true story of the whole world. The master narrative and every other narrative of the world, every other way of explaining the world, is really just a bit player uh, within the grand sweep of the right. bi- biblical narrative. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between like conservative and progressive, and it seems obvious to me that like people who are really stringently conservative or progressive, to embrace that on every issue seems like a little bit of a misguided idea have you found yourself like struggling with that mindset like buying into the conservative narrative sometimes and having to wake yourself up absolutely i think every modern political ideology is uh tends to be idolatrous uh, there's been a wickedly good book written on it by david coises published with ivp it's called political visions and illusions if i could take them one by one social conservatism tends to absolutize the conservation of a certain culture And that is what is absolutely most important. But uh, any given culture that we have is not God, and it shouldn't be absolutized. Any culture that we're trying to conserve is a mixed bag. In the United States, some of the mixed bag would be, for example, slavery and racism. Okay, so conservatism tends to absolutize the conservation of some supposed golden era of the past. Progressivism is the opposite. It views conservation as the evil and um, sort of progress into some new future as being what they want to absolutize. Liberalism, just classical liberalism, the large L liberalism, and libertarianism tend to absolutize liberty. Classical liberalism ab- absolutizes liberty in relation to social norms, that we should be free to do whatever we want to without anyone judging us for how what we do uh, sexually or uh, socially. Libertarianism tends to absolutize liberty in relation to state intervention. Now, there's some really positive aspects of libertarianism. I'm not saying it's shot entirely idolatrous. But these are the ways, these, all ideologies tend to absolutize something, and that's why they need to be brought into an interface with the biblical narrative, because the biblical narrative does not allow us to absolutize some aspect of God's creation. And so we have the reminder that only God is God. Now, to bring back to your initial question is, yes, I think every one of us is tempted to buy into some narrative some small micro-narrative that should be subsumed under the biblical narrative. And for me, that's been social conservatism. Hmm. You know, I've been more affected by the Fox News narrative of the world or the Republican narrative of the world growing up. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I think a lot of us are dealing with finding ourselves in conflict with one another because of politics, especially these days. We have a situation where 
Uh, there are evan- a lot of evangelicals who are voting for Trump. A lot of evangelicals really against voting for Trump. How are we na- navigate that? Uh, or how are you navigating like those? Because you're really outspoken about this, obviously. Like you've written a number of editorials. You seek to write about this thing, this sort of stuff publicly. So what? How are you navigating those conversations that inevitably come up um, from friends or family members who just don't agree with you at all? And actually, like a lot, like a lot of these things are framed as really high stakes issues, and so it makes the conversation a little harder. It is hard. I mean, political discourse is toxic. Um, if you look at uh, Facebook comments, comment chains on a Fox News article or a CNN article, I mean, you just have people become unhinged. They're typing in all caps. I just want to go steal the all caps and exclamation point keys off of their keyboards. Um, it's the public square equivalent of a, of a guy. It's the metaphorical equivalent of a guy walking into the public square, just sweating and shouting for 12 or 15 hours at a time. And even if you agreed with the guy, you don't even want to come near the public square because he's so obnoxious. That's our tendency and our temptation right now. And for for that reason, many people shy away from talking about politics. But I think as believers, this is our shining moment. I think it is a good thing that we have an awful election cycle. It's not entirely good, but there's something good about it. It's going to force us as evangelicals to rethink our uh, sort of monochrome uniformity to a major political party and help us step back and rethink and realize that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and Reince Priebus is not. Jesus is Lord and whoever the new Democratic chairperson is not. And it's an incredible opportunity for witness. And one of the ways we, we tend to focus on our witness being content, the content of our views, but also it's our disposition. Christians of all people should be able to interact civilly and not just civilly, but with love. Now, the, the rejoinder to me in all caps is that civility is softness and this is a war. And my answer is you are absolutely wrong. Civility is not softness. Civility is toughness. You can make your point and you can be tough with it, but it can be framed in a gracious uh, manner without misrepresenting our opponents, without demeaning the people with whom we disagree, without mocking them and reducing them to the status of an animal or a machine. We've seen that happen in the election cycle. So we treat our opponents with dignity. We respect them as humans made in the image of God, and we argue for our points. You're an elder in a church, so how do you advise elders and pastors and ministry leaders to navigate these political subjects with their congregations? Yeah, so is uh, should church be political? Yeah, and how? Yeah, and how, and in what way? <laughs> so the answer is yes and no. So let me start with yes, since that's counterintuitive, right? We've been told that churches are not political in any way. If religion were the private worship of a supernatural deity, then yes, church and and and, and uh, politics have nothing to do with each other. And uh, a lot of our founding fathers tended to view religion like that. What I want to say is that uh, that religion is not the private worship of a supernatural deity. It is the elevation of something to the throne of one's heart. Maybe the God of Jesus Christ the Allah of Muhammad, or it might be sex or money or power. And once we realize that, once something has a level of ultimacy in our heart, uh, it is relevant to public life. So when Christians gather, there are two ways that the church is political and one way that it emphatically is not. So it's political in that it is a political gathering that when we, when we gather together as a local church, we are announcing as a community that Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. that he will return one day to institute a one-party system over which he is the king, in order of peace and, and, and love, and uh, in which justice will roll down like the waters. 
And we are also saying that when we leave the gathering of the church and scatter throughout our everyday life, that whenever the Lord brings us into the arena of politics or public life, that we will interact, we will draw upon God's saving works and word and allow those things to shape the way we interact, both the content of our speech, but also our actions and our attitudes. However, the church is not political, emphatically not political, in that it is not a public policy institute. A local church does not have any business, it doesn't have the expertise or or the calling under God to tell people from the pulpit who they should vote for for the state legislature, or whether they should vote for option C or D on the sewage referendum for their town. We have no business doing that. We teach the Word of God. We make uh, application to things that are we're sure that our application is right. And we leave public policy and those sorts of things to Christians who are called to do that and skilled in it. And the church has a role of supporting those Christians. That's exactly right. In fact, we I think we should not only support them, but we should place such significance and value on those things that our young people want to grow up to do that. Because what we're doing when we interact politically is we're not looking out merely for our own interests. We are contributing to the common good. This is a way of serving uh, the city. You're obviously really interested in politics when you were young. Where did that interest come from? My parents were just godly, just good, godly parents. And they instilled in me this desire to see Christ Jesus to be shown to be beautiful and true and good in every realm of life. And early on, I started reading First Things magazine, and I began to see a Christian way of doing that. And then when I lived in Central Asia, I began to see the deleterious effects of a Soviet culture that had ripped the Christian framework from and the Muslim framework out from underneath the Christians and Muslims in that society. Yeah. Saw the nihilism and the despair, and it dawned on me uh, how deeply important it is to bring God's saving works and word into the public square. One thing we ask uh, every guest at the end of the podcast, the last question is, if you could get into a time machine, go back in time. Talk to yourself. What thing would you tell yourself? I would tell my 18-year-old self to not be an arrogant jerk when I, when I spoke on political issues, to not, not to mimic certain radio talk show hosts that I'd heard. And then I would tell my 24-year-old self not to throw up my hands in resignation and walk away huh. because there's no fixing it. So from 18 to 24, you're like fighting the good fight feeling like I'm doing everything I can, and then by 24, you're burnt out. I'm not sure those are exactly the ages, but that that was the pattern early on. Sure. Threw myself in and viewed political uh, engagement with sort of a messianic fervor yeah. that we can get in and force things happen and make them happen, and then, then begin to withdraw and throw my hands up in resignation and just say, we just need to preach and share the gospel with people. Yeah. And I think now I just uh, realized that uh, we're not in this to win, per se. Jesus wins. We don't win. We do this as a matter of witness and obedience and as a preview of his coming kingdom, which means we don't have to be tempted to withdraw on the one hand or to be a Messiah on the other. We don't have to operate out of fear or anger. We can operate out of a settled confidence that Christ will win, and therefore we can, we can do these things with grace and joy. You've been listening to The Calling. Bruce Ashford is a provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of Every Square and an Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians and One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. You can follow him on Twitter at 
Bruce Ashford. That's at Bruce Ashford. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere. Used under Creative Commons 4.0.